Hey you, welcome to Tea Talk, a space to share the therapy tea. I'm Shailene, your host, and I hope you'll join me each week as we sit down to share tips, stories, and conversations on getting better emotionally, recovering from trauma, and improving your overall quality of life. I want to remind everyone that even though podcasts can feel therapeutic, they are definitely not a replacement for therapy. Please, at any point, if you feel the need to take a break because the content is too heavy, please do that and take care of yourself. Also, if you're loving this podcast, please do me a favor and leave me a review, share your reflections with me on Instagram and share it with a friend who needs to hear it. All right. So I'm ready. You're ready. And we're friends now. So go ahead and sit down, cozy up and let's get ready for today's episode. It's an honor to introduce my next guest, Dr. Charlie Swenson, a DBT expert that's been teaching, supervising, practicing, and writing about DBT for over 30 years. He is also the Associate Professor of Psychiatry at UMass Medical School and has a private practice in Northampton, Massachusetts, where he treats adolescents, couples, and families. His website is charlieswenson.com. His podcast is called To Hell and Back, and I recommend it to everyone. He grew up in Oregon and went to school at Harvard and also went to medical psychiatric training at Yale and was on the faculty of the Cornell Medical School for over 14 years to help them develop treatment planning for borderline personality disordered patients, including a DBT inpatient and day treatment program. And he also wrote the book, DBT Principles in Action, Acceptance, Change, and Dialectics, which if you are practicing DBT, it is a must-have. I've read it myself and highly recommend it. So without further ado... I bring you my talk with Dr. Charlie Swenson. Hi, everybody. I am so excited to welcome this week's guest, Dr. Charlie Swenson. Hi, and thank you so much for coming to the Tea Talk podcast. How are you? I'm good. Thanks. We're going to talk about your podcast and a bunch of other things today, but how often are you on the other side of the mic being the podcast guest? Well, you know, a lot of my podcast, Shailene, have just been me. And so then I'm talking to me. So then I'm the host and the guest at those. And sometimes it's situations that I'm in and sometimes it's situations I'm teaching about. So, but other than that, I've never been a guest on a podcast. Really? Oh, no, actually, I was one last year. Somebody asked me to do it and I did it. I was going to say, I'm kind of surprised that you haven't been on one. So your show is called To Hell and Back. To Hell and Back, right. And I feel like you have a lot of episodes on there. Yeah, I started in 2017. I didn't know what a podcast was. I wanted to do a course. I wanted to get some DBT principles and skills out to the world for free because so many people couldn't access DBT. And so I just thought I'd do a course. And then this woman, Perry Hoffman, who was a close friend that who's passed away by now, is she said, well, do a podcast. I said, what's that? This was fall of 2017. And she said, oh, you just get on your phone and talk. And then it gets recorded <laughs> and then it gets put out. I said, okay. So I did. And I found a guy who would do that with me, the same guy that created my website. And he was very Mm -hmm. good at it. And I just started sitting in my guest room in my house and putting a phone to my mouth and I would Mm -hmm. talk for an hour. And so that was the beginning. And I think I have 83 that have been posted. Wow. Each one's one hour. And Mm -hmm. I've had a hiatus the past year and a half because of some other things I was doing that took up all my time during the pandemic. But Mm -hmm. now, actually, I've just started back uh, two weeks ago, and they'll start to be posting new ones soon. It's uh, interesting to me that that's how it started. It sounds so simple. And yet, at the same time, I know a lot of people, I mean, in doing DBT. So I have clients that listen to your podcast. 
a lot of therapists listen to your mm. podcast. And there are episodes that we still reference, mm. like episodes I've listened to a couple of years ago. And so it's interesting to hear that on my side, something that has such a huge impact, and I think is really hitting your mission of creating more accessibility to DBT and, and therapy and things like that, that it started so simply with just like, I'm just going to talk on the phone to myself and uh, record this and see what happens. So Shailene, I'm so glad I did it that way because I'm not a high tech person. And I've learned a lot more about podcasts from other people since I started. And if I knew everything I know now about podcasts, I'm not sure I would have started. It's true. I just thought, oh, who's going to produce this? And what's going to be my music? And what's going to be my theme? And what's going to be my intro and my outro? And it's like, ah. So, you know. You're right. So <laughs> I can attest. Mine actually is upgraded a little bit now, but it's still uh, pretty much uh, low tech uh, in some ways. And one of the things people have liked about my podcast is they experience it as kind of like direct and authentic as opposed to sounding overproduced. Yes. So that's yes. been my style. Yeah. So the podcast is called To Hell and Back. Tell me about, we know why you made the podcast. Tell me a bit about your, like, why To Hell and Back, the inspiration behind that. Because the episodes, some of the ones that I'm thinking about that really still stick with me, they're incredibly inspiring stories very heavy stories. And so when I think to hell and back, I think about people who have done just that. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, really, the idea was that I think the package that's available within DBT to therapists and patients, because a brilliant person put together DBT around trying to help deal with suicide and self-harm and other really painful episodes of dysregulation of different kinds, she just put together a brilliant synthesis of a variety of different approaches into one thing. And I thought, you know, this is what's brilliant about this. And really, the whole world should use this because everybody suffers. Mm -hmm. Everybody goes through adversity. So really, my thought was, how do you get through adversity? And so I call it to hell and back, partly because also Marshall Linehan said that a DBT therapist has to only do two things at its simplest. They have to get into hell with the patient. And then they have to help the patient get out of hell. And mm -hmm. so I thought, all right, to hell and back. How do people get into hell and how do people get out of hell? And like you said, there's some pretty heavy episodes. There's some that are sort of like heavy with DBT stuff. But I think what you're referring to is, you know, I interviewed some people who've been through some pretty awful things. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and they've been willing to talk in great detail about what they went through. Like the woman who mm -hmm. lost a child at age two. That's the episode that I'm thinking about. Really? Yeah. No, it's absolutely, and not because of anything I did, but because of the woman that I was interviewing. It was mm -hmm. inspiring. Mm -hmm. And also the kind of thing that when people see the title of that episode, they say, I don't want to listen to that. Um, and I can yep. understand that. But yeah. then when you listen to it, by the end, it really is to hell and back because she was inspiring in how she handled it. And there's a lot of principles of how to heal from an extremely traumatic event in your life. Yeah. Right before you came on, I was talking to my producer about your podcast and I said, you know, there's this one episode that I listened to and it sticks with me and I listened to it years ago. Now I'm a mom and I have a two-year-old son. Ah. And that was the age that he was when he passed away. And before I listened to it, I didn't have a son. I think I was getting married that year. And since then, there have been times where I've recommended that episode to clients, to other staff and I think the thing that sticks out about that, so this person is a DBT prolonged exposure therapist, and she's basically telling her story of how she lost her son. 
how she used the principles of the work that she does with her patients on herself, exactly, which is very in line with DBT. Exactly. And I remember her saying she kind of like collapses on the floor and she's sobbing and she's saying, I can't, I can't. And then she says, but I am like, my heart didn't stop beating here. I am. And I'm continuing to go forward. And that even talking about it right now, I get emotional bringing it up because it's just so just like hits you right in the heart. So that was one of them that I think about. No, I was just thinking when you say that there are real principles about how to heal from almost any adversity in what she did, because she says she was thinking, I will never be able to watch the videos of his second birthday, which had just happened with all of his friends Mm. and the other moms and everything. And then uh, the next statement out of her mouth was, then I knew I had to watch the videos. And so she watched the videos with her husband, (sighs) though he didn't want to watch. And then she watched them again, and she mm-hmm. watched them again, and she cried every time and until she just could watch mm-hmm. them. And there were a lot of other examples mm-hmm. like that. She talked about what it is to have mm-hmm. an exposure lifestyle where you're not running away and avoiding things mm-hmm. uh, just because of a traumatic event. And that sort of segued for me into also interviewing for three sessions in my podcast, uh, Melanie Harned, about what is trauma and what is PTSD and how to treat it. And so it sort of goes along with that. So yeah, some of them have been kind of heavy. There were some other heavy ones too, but that one really does stand out. I mean, what could be more catastrophic to an individual parent than that? Yeah. I think I might have written her sometime after that to let her know that I think of her almost every night when I tuck my son in. Like when I tuck him in, I think about her. Wow. Just because I can't, you know, like she woke up and he didn't wake up anymore. And so that's, it's just something that's incredibly profound. And, And in thinking about that and thinking about some of the stuff that's going on with my clients right now, you know, just things are really, really heavy in the world. And it feels like a lot of things are on fire and and it feels like the role of a therapist or a psychiatrist, I imagine the same is like that of a first responder. Like we don't get treated like first responders, but a lot of times we're the ones who are kind of past all of this really heavy, tragic stuff. Mm -hmm. And we're looked at like, okay, what are you guys going to do with this? Mm -hmm. Like, what are the mental health people going to do? And there are times when I think about stuff that my clients have gone through, or if I were to hear a story like Natalia's who shared, I sometimes sit and I think like, what can I possibly say to this person? You know, a woman who lost her son or or somebody that um, witnessed something incredibly tragic. Like there's a way in which it's really easy to get stuck in like the feeling of hopelessness. Like, oh, there are no words. There's nothing I could say. And what's awesome about her story is... Like she made the decision to move closer to it and made the decision to heal. And there's a lot of that that comes through on your podcast. And I'm curious about, you've done all of these really heavy interviews. What themes do you see coming across of people who have made the journey to hell and back? You know, there are some themes. I mean, I don't think I thought of it as themes until I've done all of these. And I step back and think, how do people heal? from a really adversity, mm-hmm. suffering, and traumatic events. So I think there are a few things that stand out over time. I mean, they obviously, they aren't the complete formula because healing from these things depends on exactly what it was because there's 400,000 different ways to heal. Yep. And so one just came up last week where I was meeting with a woman whose son in his early 20s killed himself two years ago. And this wasn't on the podcast. It hasn't been on a podcast. She comes to see me because she knew the kind of work I did. She just wanted to talk with me about what happened. Uh, Really, even before he was dead, 
and all the way to now. She comes now and then to meet with me. So she was talking to me about how, okay, it's like the second anniversary of this unbelievably traumatic mm-hmm. loss for her, of this delightful but troubled kid. And I said, you know, I want to know, when you look back on these two years, how'd you get through it? Because I know you had impulses to throw yourself into the grave with him or to just not go on anymore. And you're still doing stuff. And how did you do it? And she said, the first thing that came to mind was interesting because it was the same thing that I heard a lot about from in one of my other podcasts from Cedar Coons. Another great episode. About losing a sister to suicide in both cases. But this woman told me last week, she said, one thing really helped me that she had a friend that every day met with her in the morning after breakfast and they would go on a walk, like a five-mile walk. They're both hikers. And at the end of every day, the same friend would come and go on a five-mile walk. Wow. And during those walks, she said she was one of the only people that wouldn't try to validate me. This is a woman who knows about DBT a lot. She actually teaches other family members DBT. And she said, you know, validation's a great thing, but actually when people try to validate, it's often invalidating. You know, you're suffering and somebody says, oh, I'm so sorry, I wonder, blah, blah. And that it feels like a burden to the person who's already suffering. Like now I have to take care of you too, trying to take care of me. Right. So she said, this person just never, ever did that. They just silently walked. And once in a while, she would talk to the friend and once in a while, a friend would talk to her. But there was none of this forced effort to validate or to communicate, oh, I'm so sorry for your suffering. It was like, no, I'm your friend and we're walking together. She said, I said, would it have been the same if you just sat and talked to each other? She said, no. Mm. She said, the fact that we are walking. And Cedar Kuhn said the same thing in that podcast about coping with her sister's suicide is that just walking with somebody, she had, I think, a two or three people she walked with. And it had been a longstanding group of people that would walk together. Wow. So I think one thing that helps is to be at least some of the time in the presence of another human being who cares, Mm -hmm. who doesn't add to your burden by uh, needing to be taken care of during that time themselves, even though there's other times when that could actually be helpful. But just that experience of being able to just be felt to her like the most validating experience that she went through. That was one thing that was helpful. Now, I want to link this to something that comes from way back in my own training as a physician and then psychiatrist. I was always fascinated and interested in the details of wound healing, you know, from scars, physical scars. Like, it's amazing to me. It's still amazing to me this many years later to think, if I get cut and I just watch it, What's going on there is like the body is amassing incredible resources very quickly and very smartly to just allow the whole thing to start to have little fibers come across the the wound that holds it together at its base and then little fibers above that that come and hold it together and certain chemicals are released that help to generate uh, an inflammatory response which actually is a positive thing and then help it. It's just like a whole march like a parade that some extraordinary technician organized a long time ago and put into all of us so that we can actually heal that way. And I thought, you know, the principles of that are the same principles as psychological healing in some way, because you need to be open to reality Mm -hmm. rather than cover it up. If you cover up a wound at the wrong time, you're going to cause the wound to fester. 
So the wound has to be open to the air, and I think a psychological wound has to be open to the air, so to speak. And that air includes maybe an attachment with another person, or maybe just being on your mm -hmm. own, or back and forth. But that idea that healing, you don't have to be a great healer to heal people. Mm. You just have to know what not to do, you know, and then be there and care. Mm. Marsha Linehan said, what got her through her two years in the hospital as a 19-year-old when she wanted to die every day and was trying to kill herself and was trying to hurt herself? When you go over her story, there were two people, namely, that came in and said, Marsha, I just want you to know that we know you don't feel better. We know we're not helping you. I want you to know that we know that. And we're trying. Mm. And we're trying to figure it out. And as soon as we figure it out, we're going to try to help you with it. But we're so sorry that we haven't been able to help you more by now. Mm. That level of transparency and openness is kind of like a psychological version of the openness I'm like nobody was coming in and saying, oh, my God, we're doing everything we can to help you. What's the matter? Right. It's like, no, it's like we're trying and we realize it's not helping. Mm. We're so sorry. And she said that the level of kindness and transparency and honesty that that showed so touched her and made her feel like I can get through this. So I've always remembered that. I mean, you see somebody who's suffering and you want to help them and you think, oh, my God, I should do this. Oh, my God, sure. I should do this. What is that other strategy I learned in trainings? Well, maybe I should go to a workshop about how to help. Just start by just sitting there yeah. and just saying, how are things? And let them say what they want. And if they have nothing to say, don't push it. Mm -hmm. So that's one sort of theme, I would say, is the psychological version of openness to the atmosphere and openness to reality, openness to pain to acknowledgement of pain, and just acknowledging that that's the nature of the human condition, is there's pain and suffering uh, that we all go through, and then we get through it. But we can make it a lot worse by trying to uh, make a big deal out of certain things when actually they just need to be let go. So that's obviously not all situations, but I would start there. Mm -hmm. And say one more thing about that. When you think about PTSD, and the talk, for instance, that Melanie Harned did with me in the, for those three meetings. I mean, what she said and what is always said about PTSD, people who understand PTSD deeply realize that it isn't the trauma itself that causes PTSD. There's a lot of people go through traumas that could cause PTSD. A small percent end up with PTSD. Who are those people? Of course, some of them might be genetically predetermined to be just highly sensitive stuff. But it's also because the thing that perpetuates PTSD is avoiding the experience over and over and over again. Like you went through something bad and now you won't think about it. You won't feel it. You won't let yourself think about it. You won't talk about it. You don't want to go there. So people say, I'm sorry. I don't want to go there. Mm -hmm. I got to end this right now over and over again. And what they're doing by doing that is they're not allowing the open air version of wound healing. They're not allowing just to say, no, I'm remembering this, and this is painful, and then going through that. So I think to avoid traumatic things that have happened and not remember them and not express them sort of keeps them bottled up and perpetuates PTSD. Yes, I love the metaphor around the wound, especially when you said in treating a physical wound, mm. it'll fester. And so this idea of oh, no, I can't go there. I can't talk about that. I'm imagining someone like putting a bunch of shit on their arm, like cover it up, bandage it, 
and not letting it breathe and not letting exactly. the air, like right. really not letting the natural cycle take its course and know that when the air hits it, when it has space, it will do what it's supposed to do. Like your body does want to heal itself. Yeah. And if you allow space, if you allow time, if you allow it to be, it actually will get better. I don't even know if getting better is the right word, but the suffering versus pain comes to mind. No, it will heal. But on the other hand, if you think about wound healing of a scar, it's also true that if it's bad enough, you do temporarily need support. You do temporarily need to put something on it. The issue is timing. It's just that if you put something on it and leave it on for way longer than necessary, Mm. then you're actually probably perpetuating the trauma into the future. Mm-hmm. You know, I do think it's figuring that out is not so easy. It's a bit of a dance. It's a dance, uh, case by case. Yeah. No, I'll tell you a couple other things, Shailene. In, in my experience with all these and my own suffering, you know, I did four podcasts with a man that you probably uh, knew of, Seth Axelrod, mm-hmm. who died of cancer. And he came and talked to me about how he was coping with the suffering associated with cancer. And then his wife came on for one episode too. And uh, it highlighted something that came up with lots of them, which is social support as just always comes up. It might not be talked about as a treatment modality or something, but just the fact that somebody has a friend or has a family member or has somebody delivering food, their social support is a big deal. And it's always there when you study how do people recover from natural catastrophes and disasters and traumas. And the other thing is humor. We all know, of course, humor is a special quality. Who am I to sort of add to this conversation? I mean, we all know this. The fact that it came up over and over again in these things and people would say, you know, those moments when I could laugh about it with somebody uh, were just unbelievably helpful. And Seth Axelrod, he just kept putting things out on Facebook that were like, I forget what it was, like Iron Man. He portrayed himself as Iron Man and had all these photos and all these things. And and he would say, Iron Man enters Mass General Hospital. And then he would talk about that. And then Iron Man goes to New Jersey to get a new clinical trial. Mm. Like Iron Man stays at Yale. And there'd be always these different Iron Mans. And people would read these things and think, this man has stage four cancer of a kind that rarely is cured. And look at what he's doing. Mm -hmm. He's generating connection. He's getting social support. And he's funny. So to the degree that it's possible, and again, like you said about a dance, the timing of when it's funny and when it's not funny is critical too. You can't make it funny when it's not funny. Mm -hmm. But That goes badly. (laughs) (laughs) You can now. Not a good time. (laughs) Yes, not a good time for a joke. And speaking of time, the one other thing I would say is that um, time you know, the phrase time heals all wounds. Time doesn't actually heal all wounds, but things need longer than most Americans think. Mm. I mean, Europeans actually seem to appreciate this more. I've been to Europe a lot. But Americans think things should be over, like you shouldn't be grieving after a year, and you shouldn't be doing this after this long. And there's like a statute of limitations on suffering. And then the person just silently continues to suffer just because society only allows you to suffer so long. And then they don't even ask anymore, how are you doing? This week's episode is sponsored by the DBT Starter Pack. The DBT Starter Pack is a comprehensive training in the four modes of DBT. This is a 40-hour training starting this September, and it also meets criteria for Linehan board certification. It's CE approved, and the trainers are DBT obsessed, so it's sure not to be a snooze fest. See what I did there? Learn from two expert clinicians and trainers who continue to work in the trenches, 
and are able to train to what you actually need to know to treat clients with emotion dysregulation effectively. Find all of the details on the Rebel Mente website at rebelmente.com forward slash dbt dash trainings. Click the comprehensive training image for details. Make sure to sign up for emails on the Rebel Mente website to be notified of when registration reopens. Use code TTALK50 for $50 off of your registration fee. That's the letter TTALK and the number 50 for $50 off your registration fee. If you're thinking of becoming a DBT provider, this is a training you will not want to miss. Do we even get a year in America? I thought it was like three months or 90 days or something like that. And once the 90 days is up, if you're not better, you're getting cut off. You know, the insurance isn't covering your sessions and you got to come back to work. You're absolutely right. I totally agree. That's true. The Family and Medical Leave Act compared to what it is in Europe is just ridiculous. Mm -hmm. No, that's true. But so just knowing that it might take two years, three years, five years or forever to grieve for a loss as something as precious as a son or a spouse or a best friend. You know, it took me years to cope with the loss of my best friend when she died of breast cancer after teaching DBT with me for many years. Mm -hmm. So I just think knowing that these things go on and on and on, they're processes that, that become part of us. And we need to keep allowing them to be open to the atmosphere and express them to people who matter to us mm -hmm. to honor the anniversary of a loss and things like that. Mm -hmm. So those are things. They aren't psychotherapy techniques, but when you asked about healing, yeah. I think it goes beyond just psychotherapy techniques. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about, I don't know if you would add anything or say anything differently, but I'm curious about what feels like right now, just everything that's gone on in the past two years. It feels like the instances in which someone can experience trauma, I don't know, it feels heightened to me. It feels like the traumas can stack up a lot more quickly and somebody's likely to endure something very traumatic. Again, in the past two years, there's there's been a lot of um, really horrible things going on. And so I guess I'm thinking about the person who they keep getting knocked down. I'm imagining somebody at the beach and they're trying to catch their footing, but the waves are just too strong. And it's like one after another after another. Right. And I'm curious about your perspective on that or if there's anything you would say to that, because it feels like the last two years, that's just kind of how it's been. For some people more than others, right. you know, it's just one thing after another after another. And it's hard to even open up to the idea that things can be better at some point, that you can get back from hell, that there will be a time where they can catch their breath and keep moving or even allow themselves the capacity to experience feelings like joy again. I see that happening yeah. more and more. Yeah, me too. I think it's a good point. I mean, it's true for everybody, and especially since I treat a lot of people who are like adolescents and young adults, you know, you hear painfully from one 20-year-old after another saying, I don't know what's going to happen in my life. I mean, is the climate going to basically end the capacity mm -hmm. to live on Earth? And so there's this sort of echo anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, there is the pandemic ever going to end. Will we ever have anything normal? And I feel like I've lost so much. And is there going to be a nuclear war? It just seems like we're right on the edge of these things. And there's all this gun violence in America right now, which it just adds to it. So, And the economy, and will there be a place? Will there be a job for me? From a DBT perspective, when you analyze why does somebody end up really dysregulated, um, these would all be considered powerful vulnerability factors. And that when you say the wave upon wave, I think it's the wave upon wave of things that render you increasingly vulnerable 
to the next thing. And so whatever is going to traumatize you, because something's going to traumatize all of us. I mean, I don't go through many weeks of my life without having one thing or another thing that just, you know, is, causes me some degree of adversity or suffering. And so it makes it hard to recover from each thing. So I think it becomes especially important to follow the guidelines of just lots of approaches in therapy and in the spirituality of really repeatedly returning to what's going on in the present moment. Mm-hmm. Because the mind does time travel. The unfortunate outcome of being human beings is that you think, oh my God, next year will I be able to survive? And then you think, God, last year was horrible. And then you think, I hope it isn't as horrible next year as last year. And notice that what I'm saying is going from the future to the past to the future to the past. And actually the way out of that for the time being is, you know, to go do something in the present that's engaging. Mm -hmm. Uh, Go be with somebody that's engaging. Go to an activity that's engaging. Or just sit and listen to some music and practice gratitude for the fact that you're alive and the fact that you can see, the fact that you can hear things and the fact that you can talk to another human being. And if you can bring yourself into those moments over and over again, however fleeting they are, I think that those are antidotes for despair, You know, I'm following the gun violence stuff. It's devastating information. I'm going to do a podcast on it myself later today to have sort of dialectical perspectives on how is there a way we can think about what's going on that might be helpful. And I just think, yeah, this is like, it's overwhelming. So how am I coping with my anxiety about that? I'm doing a podcast with you, you know, talking about healing. I mean, that's all I've been thinking about for the last 45 minutes. So it's like, that's pretty damn good. I mean, <laughs> that that's like, good. that's the way out, you know, and later I'm going to do some other work with somebody and then I'm going to take a walk and then uh, I'm going to follow the Boston Celtics in their NBA finals games, which they won last night. So I had a moment of joy because I'm a Celtics fan. Whatever it is that does it for you. Mm. I mean, that's really, you can still return to those things. They aren't gone and you can discover joy under your next activity, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's one way I think about it. It's really hard Mm -hmm. to deny that these things are stressful and anxiety provoking. They just are for pretty much all of us. And then we get into extreme positions like the argument about gun violence, like, Mm -hmm. you know, then you get stuck with extremes, like the extreme of there should be nothing done to restrict any guns because you're taking away independence. And on the other hand, we should take all guns away because guns are so dangerous that And so when people are more anxious, they gravitate to extremes. We learn that in treating suicidal people. And Mm -hmm. we have to bring down the extremes, go towards the middle, and try to experience the present moment. Mm -hmm. And in those extremes, I'm thinking about myself when I happened to be in one of those extremes back in, I don't know, something politically related or racism related. It is impossible to focus on what's happening right now. It can really hijack you for hours. And you're, I'm going to find an article to send her. And what did she say about that? And I'm not going to talk to them at Thanksgiving. Like it just really can take over. And so it always really blows my mind, the simplicity of mindfulness and the power behind it that, you know, we're not looking to solve a problem per se right now. I just want you to go and take a walk. The miracle of it. (laughs) (laughs) The miracle. 
Mindfulness, Thich Nhat Hanh's Miracle of Mindfulness book, which I keep on my desk ever since I first read it like decades ago. Mm-hmm. It is a miracle. And it's amazing. When I teach young people this, and they say, what's mindfulness? I'm not interested. I say, it's your secret weapon. It's the invisible force that makes mm-hmm. you an action hero when everybody else is going under. The thing that keeps you going is these very quiet, invisible skills of being mindful. They are actually so important. Mm -hmm. So I just think it is a miracle. Mm -hmm. It's a very big deal to do that. And it's hard because some people don't appreciate in a society where high activity is valued so much that mindfulness is uh, such a powerful antidote. Yes. The other thing that you mentioned that I hadn't really considered was thinking about these very strong forces or, you know, the tragedies that are going on as very powerful vulnerabilities. Mm. And I hadn't considered it in that way, though it's really helpful because on the other side, what you're talking about in terms of antidotes and remedies are mindfulness practices, um, accumulating short-term positives. And I'm thinking of it like a very simplified check and balance system. You know, if you're withdrawing too much, And with these vulnerabilities, the vulnerabilities, those strong ones like gun violence or, you know, tragedies happening on the news, climate problems, these are all taking out, like out of the bank before we even get up in the morning, right? And so that's without coming into the day and realizing my kid's going to be sick and so I have to figure out how to work from home and, and manage him and my bills are late. Like it's without all of those personal things happening in life. And so it's just in the red, in the red, in the red, in the red. And so we have to be very intentional about, okay, I I need to go outside for a walk, even if it's just for 10 minutes today, so I can put something back and make a deposit to try and find a way to really balance that out. Right. right. And also another thing with these huge vulnerability factors, which can generate hopelessness and despair, because you think, what can I do about this? I think it's really important to try to find things that you're doing about it. And that doesn't even necessarily mean you're out there marching or you're doing a cause or you're becoming a politician just in your own life. I mean, if you feel like you are doing something and since the whole world is connected and interdependent, if you do something towards a solution or towards peace or whether it's to write something, to talk to another person about trying to get people out of extreme thinking in your own life, or whether it is to do something more than that systematically. I think that those things help to their antidotes too, because it's going to take millions of people doing small things in order to affect some of these large vulnerability factors. You know, it's not going to be because some brilliant leader comes along and does just the right thing. I think we've been watching the failure of that for many years. That's not working out. Mm-hmm. It's not working out. Even when, even when people think they choose the middle of the road guy, he turns out still didn't. it just doesn't work. <laughs> turns you know? out we still have problems. Turns out we still have problems. Yeah. And that makes it a lot more accessible. Again, so I'm, I'm thinking about myself when I get into these extremes. You yeah. said become a politician. Like, don't think it hasn't gone through my mind. I'm like, well, clearly I need to run for office. And my husband just looks at me like... Right, right. <laughs> but after you put our child to sure. bed, run for office. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Hit the polls, everybody. Yeah. When you're caught in those extremes, when the emotions are so high and you feel so polarized, your ideas for problem solving become really extreme and they're really inaccessible. That's right. And so I imagine that just kind of perpetuates the hopelessness because it's like I woke up and I couldn't run for office because I was really busy. And then I'm like, well, how is the world going to change if I didn't run for office? And so it just like, there's a way in which you do, it, it really reinforces the hopelessness of it. And so 
what you're describing is much smaller steps, that that still is part of what's going to create big impact. I'm thinking about, I've heard the saying before about the, and I'm going to mess it up, but it's something about like turning a smaller ship versus turning a cruise ship. Like it's a much more subtle turn. Like you can't just make a hard turn in steering a big ship. Mm -hmm. And so this is the same kind of idea is that you can take small steps, even if it's writing something or Mm -hmm. sharing, you know, how you feel about something or reading something about it or listening to a podcast, as opposed to feeling like the change has to be drastic and that you're the only person who's responsible Mm -hmm. because that in itself feels really hopeless. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think small steps becomes really important because most people feel disenfranchised and hopeless and feel there's no, what can I do about climate change? Uh, Well, Mm -hmm. you can take care of your own matters in a way that Mm -hmm. would be consistent with what people need to do. And then that might influence another person who it might influence. And if 20 people do that, and if 100 people do that, and if 1000 people do that, you know, then you start to see the ship turning. Otherwise, you feel like it's just so hopeless. Why should I do anything? I'm just going to lay down until I die. You know, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. yeah, the thing that's on my mind a lot right now is about the mental health treatment community. And the level of burnout that therapists are having being the kind of like the catchers of all of these problems. And I just feel like now more than ever, I'm hearing a lot of therapists question if they want to be doing therapy anymore. Like they, they're ready to just set sail and, you know, go work at Target or do anything other than help people in this way. And I know that when this episode comes out, there will be a lot of therapists who want to listen to it just because they've done your trainings and they read your book and all of that. I'm curious if there are any words of wisdom or or hope or encouragement that you have for the mental health community, given you've been in it for such a long time? Like, where do the therapists go? Where does the mental health community go in in trying to continue to be the source of help when the world is going through such tough times? You know, it's a really good question. And I'm definitely aware of the stresses you're talking about and the burnout. I supervise a lot of people And uh, I'll tell you, the people that are handling this the best, I think, are the ones that within those DBT teams that I supervise as teams, because they are working on it together. So people are sharing, they're even talking about burnout together. So I think one thing is that. One thing is that therapists can get inundated with problems. Everybody's getting more referrals than they can handle. Nobody can find a therapist. Nobody can Mm -hmm. find a psychiatrist in the entire country, Mm -hmm. as far as I can tell. I mean, it's really a difficult moment when everybody's been saturated. And therapy tends to be work, as you know, that tends to be very isolating. So you sit in your office and you absorb suffering and you try to help it hour after hour. And you try to handle all these things coming in. And you don't have enough time to nourish yourself. And you don't have enough time to get together with other people and do fun things and just block out time. And it's very hard to say no to the next referral when you know how much people are struggling. And so there's a kind of a recipe for burnout going on. And I think that therapists, ideally done as groups of therapists or teams, somehow supporting each other, but even for one single therapist, therapists have to get better at saying no. Therapists have to get better at saying no to a certain number of referrals and saying, you know what, I need some free hours during my week. Because I need to heal and recover in Mm -hmm. between the work I'm doing. I can't just go from a a 10-hour day to a 10-hour day to a 10-hour day and then see another person on Saturday morning because there's a crisis. I mean, it's just you're better off being able to say no, even though it's painful in the moment, to a number of people or to a number of commitments that you might make. 
you know, when I said I haven't done podcasts very much, I haven't been on the receiving this end of a podcast very much, it's because I've been requested and I've said no to most of them. I'm always a little sorry doing it. And I, mm-hmm. you know, I have a sort of a connection with you through training through DBT, through Catherine, Patrick, and a number of ways. And I admire the work you're mm-hmm. doing. And I thought, you know what, I'll do this podcast. But I'm, I pick and choose my obligations of training, my obligations of therapy better than I used to. But when I was younger, I would have burnt out faster. Now I make sure and spend some time so I can play the guitar and watch some basketball and take some walks in the woods and hang out with my wife and go to the movies and all these things to become like, these aren't just sort of optional sideline things. These are what keep me going. So, and diversity of work helps therapists. So therapists that do psychotherapy in private practice or a clinic all day long, that's what they do. I think they burn out faster than people who Mm -hmm. do one thing and then they do another thing. Like you're doing this podcast thing, you do some training, you do some other things, and you do some Mm -hmm. therapy. I think that in itself is a a valuable way to break up your week when you're a therapist because day after day, hour after hour of just working with people who are suffering, which is what the job is, is really hard. It's really isolating and people get pulverized after a while. And Mm -hmm. of course, years later, they say... I'm out of here. I'm going to go up and run a bed and breakfast in Vermont. You know, I, I, I that sounds nice. <laughs> doesn't it? <laughs> I'm like, try that yes. <laughs> I'm going back to your injury metaphor, right? So if somebody's broke their leg or something, my, my nephew just uh, fractured his wrist mm. and it's very strict. He, like, he can't play baseball, mm. which is a very big deal for him. And so, right. you know, it's like, well, you know, you could try, but if you do, you're going to be out way longer and it's probably going to ruin things for you. So let's just take the eight weeks in the cast and suck it up and go through it. And that's a visible external wound. So it's a lot easier for everyone to support that and to recognize that and to help him keep his boundaries and say, hey, he's a teenager. My husband said, I saw Jordan on Instagram and he was doing this workout at the gym where he jumped on a box and if he fell... And so we can all support him in saying like, hey, buddy, just consider these things because you don't want to be out for your whole season. But with burnout, we see it probably when it's way too late, when somebody's just coming into work and they're just a complete mess. And then by then there are ways in which they've already overloaded themselves so much, it's hard to help them course correct or to know exactly what they need. And so I think the internal struggle and experience of burnout versus being able to see someone that has a cast on and help them remember, like, you know, you're doing work that's really taxing and your wounds need to heal day to day, week to week, month that's to right. month. That's right. It's a helpful reminder. You know, my comment about saying no came from also reading somewhere that uh, the most successful business leaders in the world are the people who in the world say no the most. It's true. They say no all the time. Mm-hmm. They say, no, I won't do that. No, I'm not going to go there. No, that sounds really interesting. I can't do it. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. Oh, you want me to mention other people who could do it? I'm sorry. No, I don't have time to even do that. And so the (laughs) the more people that when people say no a lot, it can seem harsh at the moment, but it's a way of protecting. And what you said is really important that the damage that's done by burnout for people who do therapy is invisible Mm. until it's really visible because people have such an ethic of holding up and going on and helping people and being empathic and all of this stuff until the day they get up and the patient is supposed to come and they think, mm-hmm. I'm done. Mm-hmm. I can't see one more person or I can't see this particular person. I've had it. And it turns out that burnout 
is to some degree irreversible once you're there about certain things. It's like it's hard to fix it. So it's a really important factor that goes on for everybody who does this kind of care. Mm. It's like caregiving work if you have a, a spouse with Alzheimer's or it's like nurses that work with burn victims who never are out of pain. Mm -hmm. And it's like mental health people who are working with invisible suffering. Yeah, It's just really important to do this kind of self-care and be in the moment and say no and make sure you stick to the things that matter to you. I talk a good game, Shailene, but I've found it very hard over so the years. So do I. So do I. <laughs> it's very hard over the years. Diversity of activity has been probably my biggest savior. I agree. Yeah, trying to find things that energize me and get different parts of my brain working in different ways. But I agree, I talk a good game too. And I think a friend of mine recently said, you talk about so much self-care on your um, thing, but you work a ton. And I was like, <laughs> right. yeah, I, I really should consider this. <laughs> I should consider what I'm talking. Yeah, I should listen Practice to these podcasts. Yeah. Well, Charlie, thank you so much for spending time today. Um, there welcome. are some things that I'm holding on to from our talk that I want to ingrain in my brain. And I am considering the bed and breakfast idea just <laughs> a little bit. That does sound very peaceful. So that'll be my next escape fantasy when I'm having a hard well, time. Well, at least you can go to one now and then. I mean, yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true. Maybe that. Maybe that's the plan. Less extreme, smaller steps. Go to bed and breakfast. Don't try and exactly. buy one and run it. <laughs> that's that's right. <laughs> smaller steps. And do therapy there, right? And do therapy. <laughs> yes. So people can find your podcast on all the platforms. I'm guessing to Helen back. Pretty much, yeah, to hell and back. It's on my website, too. All of them are archived there at charlieswenson.com. Okay. But it's also on now on Spotify and Apple and everywhere that people find podcasts. And on charlieswenson.com, you can also find a series of Charlie's songs, which you're very famous for, your <laughs> DBT skill songs. Um, yes, yes. Those are very memorable. Um, I'm guessing that's the best way to find out where your events, trainings, and workshops and things like that are coming up as well, charlieswenson.com. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Yeah, that would be the place that I would post a next training. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming. And I hope to talk to you again and, and continue these conversations again at some point. Thank you. Yeah, good. Thank you, Shailene. And good luck with this podcast. I think it's a great idea. Thank you. All right. That's today's episode, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to Tea Talk. I hope that your cup of tea is full today and that you were able to pull something out of this for yourself. If you know someone that needs to hear this episode, please send it their way. And let me know what you're thinking by sending me a message on Instagram. I love hearing from you all. And make sure to follow the podcast so that you never miss an episode. And if you are loving what you're hearing, please leave me a review and a rating. It would mean so much. All right, friends, take good care and I will see you next time.